This is Glenn Crooks on Frame. Larry Olmsted, an award-winning journalist. You'll see his bylines in USA Today and Forbes, author of the New York Times bestseller, Real Food, Fake Food, and also getting into uh, Guinness. Uh, not the beer, but the Guinness World uh, Record book. Uh, what it, well, they, we, we won't get into that today, but his current book, we will. Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding where Larry makes the case that the more you identify with a sports team, the better your social, psychological, and physical health, the more meaningful your relationships, and the better connected and happier you are. I've invited a co-host for this segment, my wife, Dr. Mary Chaco, professor of communication information at Rutgers University, a sociologist who has studied some of the many ways that people form community in modern life. She is a faculty mentor for the women's soccer program at Rutgers and author of multiple books. Her latest, Super Connected, the Internet, Digital Media and Techno Social Life. And to you both uh, talk about connecting, uh, Larry and Mary uh, both grew up going to Shea Stadium to watch Mets games with their families. So uh, meanwhile, I was over the Bronx at Yankee games, guys. So uh, I hope that's OK. Larry, welcome. And uh I, I'm really thrilled to have a chance to talk to you about this uh, this book. I, I you see the title and you go like, "Wow!" I mean, that's great because all I do is watch sports. <laughs> so, but uh, tell us, uh, take us back to when your father was taking you to Mets games and how that served as uh, an inspiration for the book. Well, um, yeah, my father would take my brother and I. Uh, I have an older sister, and he actually would take her to Brooklyn Dodgers games, but you know that was a little late for me. Uh, so he took us to Mets games, my brother and I, and it wasn't until I was researching this book, you know, some 40 years later, that it occurred to me that I never really saw my dad watch sports. He never turned on a baseball game at home, didn't pay attention, didn't listen to it on the radio. And I, you know, got me thinking and it was too late to talk to him about it because he's gone. But I, I don't believe he was a sports fan. I believe he was a fan of family time and bonding and taking us to the game because that's what you did. And I have, you know, since interviewed hundreds of sports fans around the world. And if there's one commonality, they all have, it's some family memory. They're watching their first game with their father, their grandfather, their grandmother, their parents, their siblings. Um, It's an intergenerational thing that it continues to endure now. And I have friends my age who go to a game with both their, you know, 12 year old daughter and their grandfather. And it's, it's a common ground that, you know, especially in a technologically advanced age, we might not have in other ways. Well, Dr. Chaco, you went with, I know your grandmother and your cousin, Rob, did you have the same sort of experience? Absolutely. And it is as important um, now as ever. However, it's so much more expensive, right, Larry? I mean, it's not just a common thing to be able to just take your family to the park anymore. No, it's not. And that's that's a little bit sad to me how kind of corporate, you know, the experience has gotten. But the reality is most sports fans consume most of their sports on TV. Um, so, you know, you get a little bit of a different crowd experience, certainly being at the game, but you don't have to be at the game to reap these benefits. Um, And one of the things that, you know, really sets sports apart is we think we're watching a baseball game or a football game, but what we're really watching is a stadium experience. And that includes the crowd. We're watching people watching the game, which you don't get when you watch like Star Wars at home. I'm a Star Wars fan, but I watch it. I'm watching it alone. 
when I watch a football game, I feel as if I'm part of the crowd at the stadium because you see 50,000 people wearing jerseys, cheering all the time. So you become part of that, whether you're at the game or not. You talk about this connection and community, and that's one of the reasons I wanted Mary to join us on this interview. And the sense that you are one of a group of people, a community, and this makes us happy and healthy, that's uh, that's that's in the early stages of the book. And then you say humans are inherently tribal creatures, and this is the way to have a tribe. Is that the way Absolutely. you see it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's we want we've always wanted to belong, you know, cavemen form tribes and then villages and the different communities. And when we have someone in our society who really wants to be a loner and live outside of the group, though, that's the Unabomber. Um, so uh, I think that it's normal for us to want to belong. And sports provides that in a very tangible, accessible open-minded way and then you get this constant reinforcement in the things around you like bumper stickers and uh an nhl executive called described this process the head nod to me when you're walking down the aisle at the supermarket and you have your in your case yankees hat on and uh, (laughs) you see somebody in a yankee shirt and you make eye contact and give a little nod and now you're connected and they're they're total strangers, but you share that that community with them. And that's pretty unique to sports. I think people sometimes underestimate what a powerful experience it is just to know that there's other people out there who are interested in the same things as you are and who, you know, you can identify in that way. And that it's um it's something that really kind of I think bonds us together just as human beings, you know, something that we really need. Absolutely. And even outside of, I mean, obviously there's a tribe of belong. There's a reason why in in American sports, we call it, you know, fill in the blank nation, (laughs) but you don't use that term for like, you know, Harry Potter fans. Um, But even outside of our own affiliation, sports is uh, fandom is a universal language where I can go, I could be in um, Kenya at the airport and go into the bar and there's soccer on TV and I don't really follow soccer, but I can start talking to the person next to me about it. And we're instant friends over, you know, sports. And it doesn't even matter if it's your team. Larry Olmstead, our guest is current book fans, how watching sports makes us happier, healthier, and more understanding. And, you know, I, I love the part where, cause we've all experienced this and probably have said this where you could be, miles and hundreds thousands of miles away but if you're not watching your team they might not perform as well or they might not win the match and then you have this guilty feeling if if they do lose and because you maybe you you miss the game so how does that fit in well i did um include a section on superstition in the book um (laughs) which is, you know, not as grounded in science as some of the other things I cover, but it was just too rich to not include. Uh, I asked uh, uh, Dr. Daniel Wan at Murray State, who's probably the leading uh, sports fan psychology researcher in the country, what the most interesting study he ever did was. So he handed me this uh, superstition study and the lengths to which people will go you know, based on where they sit, who they'll watch games with, what they'll wear, what they'll eat. Uh, One fan, hockey fan who freezes their socks before the game. So they're the same temperature as the puck because that helps their team win. Um, My favorite (laughs) response was a a fan who refused to take the survey because she said if she let out her secret um, fandom, uh, you know, lucky superstitions, the team wouldn't win anymore. 
Uh, I know Mary and I, we are both baseball fans and the no hitter. And of course, the don't say no hitter at any point. And I know I've been on the road a lot and I, I might be listening to a game and I have to somehow let her know that she should be watching this without telling her that it's a no hitter. So I think we came up with a code. I don't, what did we do? <laughs> or, may, or I blew it a couple of times. I think that's what happened. Yeah, he would tell me that there's a no hitter going on. I would turn it on and the no hitter would be broken and I'd yell at him, Glenn. We're not supposed to be we're not supposed to be talking about it. But I really just think this idea that you can kind of affect the action by watching it is interesting, don't you think? I mean, that's part of this whole being part of the community that you're you're affecting things that fans matter. And of course, we know that because of the you know, it's well known that there's a home field advantage. But the idea that even out there at home watching that there is this community together and that we're affecting one another and it all really does matter as part of the whole experience. Yeah, and I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. So being from New York City originally, I am a fan of uh, New York's only professional football team, the Buffalo Bills. And um, I was watching the Bills in the playoffs, you know, this year. They had a good run, but I would yell, you know, drop it or catch it, depending who threw the pass, as if the player on the field was somehow going to respond to that from my living room. Let's look at Larry a little bit uh, on the uh, empirical side, the uh, some of the studies. There were two things that struck me. Turning on TV and watching is a workout for your brain. That was one. And physiologically, there was evidence that it could be a physical workout. So your research suggests that you're exercising simply by watching a sport. So uh, tell us both sides of that. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the uh, sort of cognitive brain exercise part is is the more reasonable one there. Uh, I've come to look at following sports just almost like doing Sudoku or a crossword puzzle every day. We know that that intellectual stimulation is, is good for your brain, especially as you get older. And um, sports has become a considerably more intellectual exercise in my lifetime, you know, growing up when I went to Shea stadium, we knew the ERA there were, you know, you could fit all the statistics you needed to know on the back of a top baseball card, but now you've got, you know, money ball saber metrics and, you know, wins beyond replacement plate discipline and all these stats. And likewise, uh, NBA offenses and NFL defenses have become much more complex. So it requires a little bit more, uh, strategic and intellectual activity just to be an avid fan. The other part, those studies uh, of the physical stimulation, I kind of touched on lightly because they are few and far between. It's, you know, I think a nascent uh, science. They do show that people watching exercise have a physiological risk or watching sports have a physiological response as if they were doing sports themselves, even when they're watching that they don't have when they watch a sitcom, but presumably might have if they watched like a horror movie, anything that, you know, kind of elevated their stress level. So to me, the more interesting fitness finding is uh, the instances of when people who are otherwise sedentary are transformed into active participants in some fitness pursuit as a result of watching spectator sports. That's when sports has a real value to society because we, you know, the world we live in, it's better for us if people are more active. That's tangible. And you refer to it in your book, a U.S. women's national soccer team, uh, the 99ers winning the World Cup and uh, on U.S. soil and the uh, the surge in girls participating in the sport of soccer after that. Yeah, absolutely. And that transcends, you know, high school, collegiate I mean, that's a, you're talking hundreds of thousands of people. And 
Um, I mean, I had a personal experience with this, not through soccer, but a friend of mine watched the Boston Marathon. And it's sometimes hard for people who don't live in New England to realize how big a sporting event that is here. But it's, you know, it's on a holiday. It's like its own day. And uh, my friend said, hey, maybe we should try running. And I had never run. And we went out for, you know, two miles or something. And that led me to run very regularly for years and run marathons and half marathons and 50Ks. And my life was improved immeasurably health-wise by a spectator sport on TV. And, 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 you know, I'm not the only one. You know, I, I like to golf, but as a collegiate coach over the years, there hasn't always been a lot of time, but made a little bit more time during the pandemic. And, you know, if I watch a golf tournament, I want to go out and play, you know, or I, or I just go out, you know, Mary will attest to this. I have these wiffle golf balls that I just smack around in our front yard. And, uh, so that really that really does work. And the other uh, the the other event that you you really pointed towards was the Olympics, how there's a surge in, in certain sports uh, either uh, prior to or just after the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, there's two profound effects with the Olympics. Uh, one is a, an almost reliable uptick in gym memberships. Afterwards, it's almost like a New Year's resolution. Uh, and it used to happen every four years, but now it happens every two years. And, um, you know, not every, like a New Year's resolution, not everyone sticks with it, but some of them do. And that is, I think, because you get a lot of people watching the Olympics who maybe don't watch other sports or we're watching sports we don't normally watch, like track and field and gymnastics and speed skating that are all about sort of personal athleticism. And that, uh, you know, encourages you to be more fit. But the other thing is when there's new sports that really people haven't seen and sort of the Tokyo Games this summer, assuming they go off, one of the new sports is rock climbing and it's going to be indoor gym based, which means people are going to be watching that. Most of whom have never watched rock climbing. If they're interested and it's pretty thrilling, they can go do that in the middle of any city in the United States. And I think a lot of them will, or their gym maybe already has a climbing wall. So, you know, you're, I, you see these surges when people are exposed to new sport for the first time. Larry Olmstead, uh, award-winning uh, journalist, his book fans, how watching sports makes us happier, healthier, and more understanding. And look, uh, as a, a, a soccer journalist, soccer media member, soccer coach, uh, I was uh, immediately stimulated when uh, ju I just looked at the opening paragraph of uh, the promotional material that goes out. Uh, are you a sports fan? Do you spend weekends watching the NBA finals or the FIFA World Cup? So soccer, uh, you know, was uh, was in the headline. So I, I absolutely, you know, said, I got to I got to get this guy. And plus, I love the, the subject material. But there's a guy named uh, Frank Franklin Foer, who wrote the book, How Soccer Explains the World. And you give him um, credit uh, for giving you some stimulation in that area. Can you describe? Yeah, he talks about the role of sports fandom in politics, uh, particularly the overthrow of totalitarian regimes. Um, he talks about Franco, Spain, the Middle East, and it, all places where, uh, you know, the uh, soccer is the predominant sport, which it is in most of the world. I was act I knew even as a non, not a soccer fan, that soccer was the biggest sport in the world. I didn't know that cricket was second until I started <laughs> my research. Um, but uh but yeah, he he traces this thread to, you know, several countries around the world. And it has 
you know, continued since. His book was really written before the Arab Spring, but a lot of the things he predicted then, you know, sort of happened. And to me, even though it's not soccer, it's rugby, the really most tangible political effect like this we've seen was post-apartheid South Africa and Nelson Mandela using rugby fandom to prevent civil war and transition to democracy and reconcile the country. And you see, they made this movie Invictus with Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon about it, but it's a true story and it's a really compelling story. There also seems to be something so intensive about the um, activity of soccer fans in the stadiums and, of course, you know, in, in viewing locations and, and bars and stuff like that. And I wonder if that's associated with what you're saying here, that it's that type of a fan, maybe, that's making that kind of a difference. Yeah, well, I think the, um, you know, in, certainly in the Middle East and some of the European uh, uh, countries, you have these fan clubs, the ultra groups that don't really have a direct equivalent in the United States. Um, but also, you know, the thing about soccer is you, you don't need a lot to play soccer. You know, I've been to a lot of less developed countries and you see a field with like, you know, two rectangles made of PVC pipe or old wood, and it's instantly right. recognizable as a soccer pitch, even if it doesn't have grass, right? It might be gravel, um, it's, it's the most accessible sport in that way. I mean, some play places, they don't even can't even afford a ball, but they play, you know, rolled up clothes or whatever. It really all you need is something to run on, <laughs> uh, some flat surface. And, um, and, you know, these countries like that, you know, where four documents, it are all countries that, you know, could be better off. And so I think, you know, soccer is an accessible outlet to people that, you know, you mentioned how expensive being a spectator can be in our country. So, hey, Larry, close to where you grew up in New York City, the Met Oval, very much a uh, a field that like you just described here in Jersey, there was Farcher's Grove where some great players played uh, and and developed. Larry Olmsted, uh, author, our guest. And uh, I'm also here with Dr. Mary Chaco, Rutgers University. And you talk about uh, sports fans and civil rights, women's rights, and sticking with soccer a little bit. Megan Rapino from the U.S. Women's National Team. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, certainly out of the NFL, uh, was, uh, uh, you know, certainly uh, criticized, probably uh, more than uh, complimented for kneeling uh, uh, during the national anthem as a, as a protest, a civil rights protest. And uh, Megan Rapino followed closely thereafter, doing it with the U.S. women. So here we have, uh, well, how does that, those two uh, actions of, of superior athletes relate to the sports fans um, becoming more connected? Uh, is it with their athlete or with the actual social justice movement? Well, I mean, there have always been activist athletes, you know, go back to the Mexico City Olympics and Tommy Smith and John Carlos holding up their fists or Muhammad Ali protesting Vietnam. But the, the biggest, the two big differences are, you know, most of the sports we watch are team sports. So there's the buffer of the team, like Muhammad Ali, he was an individual athlete and he had his own forum, but Colin Kaepernick works for a team. Uh, so it's a little bit different in that regard, but they also have access to social media now, which they did not. So, you know, when uh, John Carlos held up his fist, he had to rely on translating his message to the public through the, the news media. Whereas LeBron James can instantly reach out to tens of millions of people who follow him on Twitter. So that's a big change. And that in turn 
has changed the way the teams and leagues handle it. For a long time, even though the athletes had messages, the teams did not want to be involved in politics. The leagues did not want to. And now they're realizing that that sort of the barn door is open, I think. And, you know, that's why they're having this on-field social justice messaging on uniform. The NFL just committed a quarter of a billion dollars to to fight systemic racism. So it's always bothered me that some sports fans think that politics and sports should be detached when they never really have been. But, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't tell our, our last two presidents, different parties, both sports fans, you would never go to the president and say, hey, you can't talk about sports because you're a politician. So why should it go the other way? Or you can't go to a game and, uh, you know, be televised. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, the, uh, you know, talking a little bit about Megan Rapino and, and uh, Colin uh, Kaepernick and, and taking their knee, uh, Rapino. Uh, and U.S. Soccer, the Federation, recently uh, made the judgment that uh, their athletes at one point, they said everyone has to stand for the national anthem. But they recently revised that at their uh, uh, annual AGM. So there was an impact there. And a lot of it was because Rapino got so much support. Yeah. And I think it's interesting with the anthem, the, you know, the, the question people had that they ask is, you know, should you kneel, should you whatever? The real question is, should the game be, should it be played at all? You know, that's not the history of sports. It's, it, you know, it, it came in, um, you know, I've read editorials where people say, well, you know, why don't we have the national anthem before every movie, every play, every other form of entertainment we see? It's kind of, kind of, it's one of those things that just arrived at a moment in time where it's stuck. No, that's. That's a very much a, a legitimate question. And in the soccer realm, so many teams have so many multinationals. I mean, it, you know, you, in order to accurately portray, you know, who's on your roster, you'd have to play 12, 13 or 14 national anthems at time and why, times. And why do you play the Canadian and the U.S. anthem, but not the others, you know, which is what happens in American sports when they're playing Toronto, for instance. I mean, and soccer is also different in that it has a long history of international competition in a way our sports don't, right? Now we, we play basketball in the Olympics, but there's no, uh, you know, and the, maybe the Little League World Championship has foreign teams, but it's not like the major league teams and the NFL teams and the NBA teams go play in international competition the way um, that you have in soccer. And, and the, uh, the international athletes in soccer – they don't understand the national anthem before the games because they don't do that in their countries. Uh, Larry, you, you talked about how, how sports can heal communities. And I think the one that probably strikes the three of us mostly because we, we were here in the metropolitan area uh, is, uh, is 9-11. And here I'm with two Mets fans, Mary Chaco, Larry Olmstead, but uh, the Mets played the Atlanta Braves as the first pro uh, game after 9-11 but I, I remember the Yankee side of things I remember coaching my own team at Rutgers during all of this and uh, it was very profound and, and sports really did uh, lend itself to, to a healing process yeah and I mean I spoke to one fan who described that Mets Braves game as the moment when it was okay to smile again you know which is pretty profound um, but then interestingly, you know, four or five weeks later, you have the World Series start, the Yankees, uh, George Bush throws out the first pitch. And I still talk to fans who conflated, who thinks the, that the Yankees and the Mets played after 9-11, not, you know, that because the events were so big and so close together. And actually this year for the 20th anniversary, Major League Baseball has scheduled a Mets-Yankees game at Citi Field on 9-11. 
um, to sort of commemorate all of that. But it was really powerful. But then we saw it again after the Boston Marathon bombing in Boston. We saw it in Las Vegas with the Golden Knights after the horrific shooting there, the one October shooting. And, you know, I, uh, I used to work in the World Trade Center. I grew up in Queens. So I knew well the power of the games after 9-11. But I thought of that as, until I did this book as more of an isolated incident. And it's not. It happens over and over. Natural disasters, too. Hurricanes, tsunamis. So sports has an incredible power to heal. But what I really appreciate, too, is just how you place the fan in a position of importance in this community. It's not just the players. It's not just the even, you know, the uh, the larger issues involved. Um that, you know, that fans have such a, a central role. They're not really on the periphery. I don't know how much, Larry, you have thought about the role of the coach in this whole social system, but is there anything that you think coaches should know about fans and their motivations that would be helpful for them? They like it when you win. <laughs> um, but no, not really, because I think the, the, the connection, you know, isn't, as important, the fans are fans of the team. They want the team to do well, but they don't expect a certain addressing, I think, from the coach. I'm just thinking about how, you know, really everybody has their role to play and fans really do matter. I mean, we're even seeing when now that fans are not in so many of the stadiums um, that there's a different feel to everything. There's a different vibe. And, um, you know, I, I imagine that coaches to some extent have had to sort of, you know, manage that, have had to deal with that, the, the emptiness of the stadium, um, knowing that people are listening or watching, you know, from afar. And uh, I, I think it really just highlights everything that you're writing about in this book, that fans are so critical to the process. And when they're not there, you really do, you sort of get a sense of how important they are because of their absence. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, if there were no fans, there would be no professional sports. People would still play games, but, you know, wouldn't be on TV. They wouldn't be paid millions of dollars. <laughs> Well, it's sometimes nice to be able to hear the coaches giving directions. I'm sure the coaches don't like the fact that every word is heard on these televised <laughs> matches because, uh, well, it's, it's not always so pleasant. But you, you did. And, and, and to wrap, uh, Larry, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic, you uh, you say that, that sports really improved people's lives during the pandemic. And sometimes we looked at it as well, there was this long period of time where players, youth players, couldn't even get outdoors to play. You know, they had to figure things out. So, you know, we tended to maybe look at the uh, the negative posture, but uh, you're, you're saying that sports really uh, improved our lives. So many people that I had spoken to for this book have emailed me or called me and said, oh, I never watched as much sports as I have in the last year. And, you know, certainly, you know, even in, in the examples we talked about, like 9-11 and some of these natural disasters, the psychologist told me, you know, one of the benefits is distraction from your problems, basically. And certainly sports provided that, I think, amply during the pandemic. And even, uh, you know, at the beginning when there were no sports and they aired that uh, Michael Jordan documentary and the ratings, you know, the, the last dance were through the roof. It's a great documentary, but certainly more people watched it because they needed something to watch. I was just going to bring that up that in the very early days of the pandemic, when all the sports were on hold, uh, what a strange feeling that was. It just felt like there was something beyond the pandemic that was wrong with the world because sporting events were not being held. And it was a very off-putting feeling. You know, I mean, I just really couldn't wait until, you know, uh, players got back in the field and, and uh, sports could operate normally. Larry Olmstead, uh, his book is Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier and More Understanding. Also, along with me, uh, Rutgers professor, Dr. Mary Chaco, sociologist 
And uh, we both enjoyed the book, Larry. Highly recommend it. Uh, it's um, it's really thought provoking. Thank you so much for for sharing and uh, and good luck with it. Thanks for having me, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is Glenn Crooks on Frame.